Thanks for joining us for the Changing the Industry podcast, where we try to effectuate change for the better, one conversation at a time. Part of that change is providing help for those that need it. This is why we've partnered with the Institute for Automotive Business Excellence. Whether it's help with sales, operations, or just getting your numbers in order, these folks are some of the very best in the industry. And for our listeners, they'll sit down with you and go over your strengths, your weaknesses, and the opportunities that are in front of you. They'll create a customized plan for how to move forward absolutely free. That's right, free. And if your plan includes one-on-one coaching, they can also help you with that. There's no hard sales pitch, no obligation, just honest help from honest people. So if that's something that you think could benefit you, make sure you click on the link in the show notes. And now, on to the show. I remember how it used to be. The phone's ringing off the hook. Clients are coming in the front door like crazy. And here comes little technician Timmy. Timmy comes up and he says, hey boss, where's my part? Where you want me to go next? What you want me to do? Gosh, Timmy, if I knew, I'd tell you, buddy, but I am covered up. All of that stopped when I found Shopware. With Shopware, you get an industry-leading expediter right there in the software. It tells you if your parts are here, where your technician should go next, and how much time they have left to complete the jobs in the day. Go to GetShopware.com to learn more. GetShopware.com. Hey everybody, David here, and welcome to the ASOG Podcast. In this episode, we're joined by Tanner Brandt of Autodiac Clinic in Greenville, South Carolina. He's also a technical trainer with World Pack Training Institute. As someone who deals with both independent repair shops and dealerships, we get his perspective on what he feels are the problems plaguing the independent repair shops and how he would go about fixing it. We also ask him for his scan tool picks, and at one point he makes an attempt to defend Dorman. So make sure you listen out for that. Before we begin, however, hit that like button if you're on YouTube, subscribe to the channel, or make sure that you have the podcast set to automatically download the latest episode on your favorite podcast listening app. And now, here we go. You know, so I don't know if you know this, Tanner is a big chicken, okay? <laughs> First of all, I, I send Tanner to the graveyard behind my shop to get a car, right? <laughs> and I send him with a tech and said, hey, will you drive this down? And he says, yeah, sure. Tanner gets back, and dude, he is as white as a sheet of paper. I'm like, what is wrong with you? And he's like, dude, that thing could have lost brakes. Anything could have happened. You people drive up and down those hills like that all the time. Dude, I mean, like it was it was nothing. It was basically level ground. So let me set the stage here. He sends me up there to get a Jeep with a broken frame and rotted brake lines. And he's like, oh, it's fine. (laughs) I'm I'm from New York. I know what rotted brake lines means. <laughs> Dude, uh, uh, listen. I, I drive up and down that hill in a dump truck with no brakes at all in the winter, right? Like it, it doesn't even have brake lines on it. And, and then that same day, he tried to light me on fire. No, that was Eric who tried to light you on fire. I was the one who politely said, "Hey, Tanner, get out of the truck." And you said, "Why?" And I said, "Because it's on fire." At the um, gas pump. Yeah, in front of a gas pump. <laughs> it was awesome. 
It was a good day. A gas, just a gas station gas pump, or you have yeah. a gas pump on the property? No, no it, it was a gas station. We, yeah. we got to we, use we that fire to the gas station. <laughs> drove to the gas station, it lit on fire, and then you what? Walked yeah. away from this truck? No, we debated if we were going to push it away from the gas pump and watch it burn, or if we were going to put the fire out. That's what we did. We, it it, it the, was that bad. We put it best, out. Yeah, and the best part about putting the fire out is Lucas wastes the first fire extinguisher on it, and I run across to get the second one because the only other fire extinguishers on the other side around the building. And I get over there, and it's locked in a plastic case. And I'm like, well, this is inconvenient. How do you get the fire extinguisher? And I'm like looking at it and pulling on the door, and the guy at the gas pump that can't see the truck on fire on the other side of the building is like, hey, man, you need that thing? I'm like, yeah, there's a truck on fire over there. So instinctively, I just shattered the thing with my fist because I didn't have any other way to open it. So I just punched it and broke the glass on the front of it and then took the fire extinguisher and went and put it out. Meanwhile, this guy's probably like, wow, that was the most intense thing I've ever seen, and I have no idea why that guy just did and, that. And, and you know, the, If he the was best, the owner of the business, he was like, that just cost me $400. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and look, the best part of it is is like – the, the the most difficult decision of the day was, oh, man, I'm going to have to get my pants wet. I'm going to have to lay down on the ground and exactly. get sopping wet to put this out. <laughs> Just push it out of the way. And it would have been a blessing for the client. Please don't misunderstand. This would not have been bad for the client. Okay? Not at all. Um, anyway, moving, <laughs> on. moving uh. on. So what is it that you're wanting uh, Tanner to talk about? And then Tanner, we're going to expect an hour solid okay. of your best material. Um, so a, a couple things, you know, so one of the things that we know we, we Tanner has a really strong number on is scantles, right? Because when I talked to Tanner, this was right after we had had Brandon on, we were talking about what scantle would you buy if, if, you know, you had a shop and you only could buy one, what would you buy? How do you determine what it is that you would buy? Um, what equipment is a must, right? Um, and and so one of the reasons that I, I think that's an important conversation is that because so often um, we're hearing all of these techs and shop owners who go out and the first tool they go by is a, is a scantolomoscope. You can do a lot with a test light and a voltmeter. You really can. Um, and and they they completely skipped that. So that was one of the things. Well, who do you know that's running out and buying a scanner and a scope? Don't make me list them. I'm, I'm saying like the like I have I have two techs who just came back from a training class. And shout out to Keith Perkins, who put on apparently a fantastic class because one of my technicians could give two craps about diagnostics. He's like, he, he muddles his way through most of it. If he knows the system really well, then yeah, he does a pretty good job of diagnosing it. But if he has to put any actual effort into it, uh, he gets frustrated mostly because he has to put effort and he doesn't like to do that. So he came back from the class all excited, picked up a, a used Pico scope that uh, didn't come with any accessories, just the actual box. And uh, he's all excited about buying diagnostic equipment and he's watching uh, YouTube videos on, uh, you know, how to use the scope and how to hook this thing up and what you can do with it. And he's watching uh, trained by technicians and I'm sure there was a 
Tanner video somewhere in there as well. But he's he's picking up. Lucas and I have been telling you about Parts Tech for a while now and how it gives you access to unlimited parts and tire vendors and direct integration with over 35 shop management systems. And now they've just launched a new referral program. All you have to do is open your Parts Tech account, go to My Shop, and click on the Rewards tab. There you'll find your referral URL, which you can share via email, text message, or on your social media. If your referral signs up for a new account and places five orders in the first 30 days, Parts Tech will send you a $100 gift card. That's it. Nothing else is needed. Your referrals can get you $100 just for using Parts Tech, which, by the way, is absolutely free to get started with. So if you're using Parts Tech already, start sharing that referral link. And if you haven't signed up for Parts Tech yet, what are you waiting for? Click on the link in the description or go to partstech.com forward slash podcast. That's partstech.com forward slash podcast. Hey, one more thing. If you find out that your shop management system doesn't integrate with Parts Tech, it's time to upgrade. David and I use what we believe to be the very best system on the market, shopware. With unmatched features like Parts GP Optimizer and DVX, which is their digital vehicle experience, Shopware really is way more than just a shop management software. With it, you'll be able to create an immersive and interactive experience for your client, setting you apart from everyone else using run-of-the-mill software. Are you ready to upgrade? Click the link in the show notes to get started. All these tips, and he's all excited about this. And the discussion went from, I don't need diagnostic equipment, it's all BS, to I'm going to go buy these five six seven thousand dollar scan tools because i need this feature that i saw in this video that i'm i've never needed before we've never needed it in the shop before even if we did i've got the equipment already in the shop to handle it but now he wants one for himself that's usually not the case they're usually buying you know ratchets and you know electric tools like i need a half inch impact or a bigger half inch impact or this new model of half inch impact and that's what they're spending their money on which is a thousand bucks you know it's expensive but i'm not buying scopes who are you talking to i i've got a tech that went out and bought a scope and still doesn't know how to use it oh <laughs> eric i'm sorry i hope you're not listening <laughs> um ouch so <laughs> I, think. I can edit that out. Don't worry. Poor Eric. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, no, he earned that because he knew that I was under the gun today to get uh, a lot of work done. And, and he called the dude was sick, so. man. Come on. Oh man. Come on now. Ouch. Man. I know I would have gone to his Put, house and dragged him out of bed. Putting the evil in shop owner. Bring him yeah, back absolutely. ESO. Man. man. <laughs> Ruthless. Ruthless. So I think the, Keith Perkins thing in the training is a good thing to bring up. So, you know, Keith is phenomenal. He's a great buddy of mine. And you don't have beef with Keith? No, love Keith. Can we somehow make it that you have beef with him? That makes the (laughs) uh, podcast really popular, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, everyone already knows Keith and I are good buddies. Keith and I started our mobile businesses at the same time. Actually, about six of us started our mobile businesses at the same time. It was a mass exodus. Um, But So he's a perfect example of if you take a training class from somebody that has a very in-depth knowledge of what they're teaching – you immediately learn 
that you don't know what you don't know. So not ever to throw shade on other training companies, but sometimes you'll take a class from somebody whose material uh, their teaching might not be their own. And because of that, they don't have a super in-depth knowledge. Um, and you can sometimes get to where they're, you know, death by PowerPoint and things like that, or they can't really go outside of, um, you know, what they're teaching if somebody has a question outside of it. When you go to a class and it's taught by somebody like Keith, who's teaching, you know, his material on something like that with scopes and with scan tools, when a technician doesn't have a big grasp on, let's say, electrical, um, and then sees it on a scope and has somebody go through a capture, so let's say like an injector, and always before they've been using a Noid light on an injector, and maybe they've had a car that just kicked their butt that they checked and said, yep, it has spark. They pulled a spark plug out of it and stuck it in the end of the ignition coil, cranked it over, it had spark, or you know, pulled the coil away, heard it spark, and then put a Noid light in the injector and saw it light and the car still didn't start. Where with you, when you start looking at it with a scope and you start to understand, oh, the ignition fires, you know, let's just throw a number out there, 20 degrees before top dead center or 12 degrees before top dead center or something. And the injectors on a uh, port injection vehicle fire on the intake stroke. You start to understand more and more in depth of, okay, this makes a lot more sense now as to why I yeah. could need this. And this is maybe why I misdiagnosed that car or struggled on that car because I saw a Noid light flash, but I didn't understand that there was actually timing at play. So when you take a class from somebody like Keith that has you know, such a great knowledge on those subjects and can explain it like I just did, then that gets people interested. They're like, oh, now I understand. And, you know, that's something that's what I would say what got me into training. The let's see, the first big training event I ever went to was a TST big event. And some people have heard this story before. Um, I was sitting with Robert Pleasanton and John Rogers and Mike Burmester and those guys. And the first guy that went was a Napa guy. Um, second guy that went was a transmission guy from ATSG, I think, or something. Automatic Transmissions Group. I can't remember. I haven't taken a class from that company since, um, just because they don't seem to do a lot. But the last presenter was Mark Warren, which uh, anybody that's listened to this knows now that Mark is my boss. Yeah, Mark. Um, so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't working for them then. That was the first event I had went to, uh, and met Mark later that day. Uh, Dave Mackles had introduced me to him. So Mark is one of those people that has a super in-depth knowledge of things. So after I sat through that, I was like, "Wow, I understand all this now." And he talked about that class was on diagnostic process and um, diagnostic of approach, and I pick on him all the time because. That particular class has a segment in it, and it talks about somebody peeing in the river upstream of you, and you're downstream drinking in the water, and understanding that if something happens prior, or somebody messed with something prior, that it's going to screw up everything that you go to do. So, you know, once you start to understand things in depth and have it explained to you, in a better way that I guess makes sense to a technician. That's when I see people start to get excited about diagnostics. Well, so hold up here, right? 
you, you bring up a really valid point. And it's one of the big things that we've been talking about lately. And it's, it's as simple as this being excited. Right. And, and I guess by that, I mean, so many technicians go home today, they're burnt out, they're frustrated. Where are we going wrong? Right. Because that is one of the most common things that's happening right now. You know, we're talking about a tech shortage, but the techs don't seem to really be happy in the field. Tanner, where are we getting this wrong? Sure. So, I mean, I was definitely one of those. I tell a story a lot about uh, kind of my last month in um, a repair shop as a regular repair tech. I worked in shops after this, but this was kind of the start of where I started making the change to do more diagnostics. I did something like six or seven engines in a month and four transmissions. And I was like the you know heavy line guy. I did everything like that. And at the end of that month, I was just sore. I was beat up. You know, it was not a good month as far as work. And it just kind of sucked. And I got to the point where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something that I enjoy. And I always enjoyed the diagnostic side. So that's when I started you know, getting more involved in that side of things and starting to uh, go and look for training and go and look for you know, YouTube videos and things like that, that I could start to learn from. So I think where shops sometimes go wrong, and, and I think I would push this outside of automotive even, it, where an employer goes wrong is maybe not talking to the employees and finding out you know what they like. I always joke, think of big companies that have you know a thousand employees and maybe they're you know, looking for somebody to do training on, let's say, communication or people trying to understand people, maybe, and they have no idea, you know, what their people are like, and they hire an outside source. Well, what if they had somebody working for that company that had a psychology degree from Harvard, but they didn't know that, and they didn't understand their employees, and they had never talked to their employees, and then they wanted to do something like this, and then it came up this person they hired was talking with each employee and all of a sudden was like, Hey, did you know you had somebody with a psychology degree from Harvard? You know, they have no idea about their employees. They have no idea what their employees want. And they also didn't realize that that employee could have, you know, potentially helped them and helped their other employees. So I think in the you know grand scheme of things, it just comes down to a company has to really try to sit down and figure out what's you know motivating their employees, what their employees want, um, sometimes obviously we look at it and there we're like, Oh, it's pay, but sometimes it's a lot more than pay. I just actually spoke with a technician just before I got on here that was looking at leaving a very large company to come join the automotive aftermarket. Um, and it basically was motivating him and looking at what he was trying to do is he didn't want to work nights, wanted to be uh, at home with his family more, but he has health insurance for his family through where he's working now. So had to be able to get insurance straightened out and things like that. It really wasn't a money motivator. It was more spend time with his family, but also make sure that his family was taken care of. So let me ask you this. What was the straw that broke the camel's back? I mean, what what was the final point where you just said, F it, I'm out, I'm done, I'm not doing this? <laughs> so the last shop I worked for here, uh, and they're a great friend of mine now, so there's no you know, bad blood or anything. I was irritated that 
they were behind the times. And I guess that my career was headed a different direction. And that was exactly what I said to the shop owner. I sat them down and said, look, you know, this is no longer a good fit for me. It's nothing against you and your business, but my career is headed one direction and your career and your shop is headed another direction. So that was really, how did they get to that point though? Um, so were there discussions up to that point about, Hey, I think we need to invest in this equipment. I think we need to start marketing towards these kind of vehicles. Did that discussion happen at all? So that one was kind of short-lived and it was kind of a strange deal because I moved to South Carolina, um, knowing that I would probably, you know, eventually have a mobile diagnostic business or something in the training side. Uh, I was working for a shop down here. I had only been down here four months. Um, and it was just the shop was, you know, the shop that I took the job with that when I moved down here, I just kind of realized wasn't the right fit in that time frame. So I had only been there four months because I just moved to the state. Um, and I talked with another shop and kind of helped another shop sort of part time and started going around to other shops and just realized that what I wanted to do and where they were and where their understanding of the industry was in comparison to mine was you know, just two completely different tracks. So for me, there was no, you know, discussion because they were pretty much both those shops too are at a point where, you know, for example, the one shop's more or less for sale. He's been talking about selling it now for the past two years. Um, I moved down here three years ago. So the shop is kind of on its way out as far as the owner is concerned. Um, So no real, discussion i guess there now if i was you know in a different position i had been with somebody for let's say five years or something like that you know i certainly would have had that discussion with them but knowing that the shop was ready to be sold and that i was just headed a different direction that's how it was handled for me so you knew that the guy was probably not going to want to make a big change in the business yeah yeah he was and like i say it's for sale now and i've done this will sound kind of strange to some of the people listening to this. <laughs> when I was younger, I worked for a lot of different shops. And when I was in college, it drove them nuts. And they used to pick on me and tell me I was a job jumper uh, and that I should stay with these different shops. And I explained to them, I would stay with this shop, but I don't think that the shop is going to be here in a year. And I have a list of 12 shops that I said were going to be gone in a time frame, and all 12 of those shops were gone in the time frame that I said that they were going to be gone in. So you're like the, the shop Grim Reaper? <laughs> no, you can just, you can see it. I mean, we see it, you guys see it when we talk about, you know, somebody who. I have terrible comes, instincts. Trust me. I, I can't tell. I'm like, oh, that shop should be closed. The guy pulls up in a $150,000 tricked out truck and he's like. <laughs> What you talking about? <laughs> well, I guess for me, the way I can always tell is you you can tell when somebody's on their last legs financially. You can also tell when somebody's on their last legs as far as, you know, age and where their business is going. Um, I can see that I had a shop down the road for me close uh, at the beginning of this year. They took their sign down about three weeks ago. And I stopped to give him a business card when I first started my mobile business. Uh, he has never used me. and about probably six months ago, I saw his ad in the paper that he was looking for a tech 
And I thought to myself, I know the area because those of you that know me also know that I do a lot of podcasts with uh, various other people, one of them being a place that helps with technician recruitment. And so because of that, I always know what the going rate is in my area. And I know uh, what different shops are looking to hire at. So at any rate, this guy had an ad in the paper for the past six months. And I thought, you know, I don't think he's going to be able to find anybody with what he's looking for. He was, you know, near retirement age. Um, and I just know what the technician market is here. So looking at it, I'm like, yeah, he's got no chance of hiring at that. You know, if he finds somebody, it's not going to be somebody that can repair stuff. And come January, he closed the doors and I called a commercial account manager and said, Hey, what was his reason? They he had ran an ad for six months, couldn't find a technician. Well, when your ad is 10 bucks an hour in an area that the shops are paying $35 an hour and BMW is paying 18 to $27 an hour. If you can fog a window, you're you know certainly not going to find anybody. You know, it's kind of interesting. You bring that up. I, I, so I rented a piece of equipment for the building project. Right. And on my way back, I actually called David. And um, so I went into this Sunbelt rental place. And this little young guy's working behind the counter. And, and so um, when I went to rent this piece of equipment, I had to go up the limit on my card. So while I was waiting for them to up the limit, I began to talk to the kid. And I said, so, you know, what do you think about working here? You know, what's your experience been like? And he said, oh, it's really great. And I said, how long have you been here? He said, well, he said, I've only been here for about two months now. Um, he said, you know, I just started and they just opened the store and I said, well, that's cool. I said, what'd you do before? He said, I was an automotive technician. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I worked for such and such tire store. And he said, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> it was a really kind of shady experience. And I said, well, explain it to me. And he said, well, he said, so the situation was, he said, um, they wouldn't ever give me pay stubs and they expect me, expected me to work 55 and 60 hours a week. And they just expected more and more and more. And he said, you know, I was an entry level guy. He said, I'd been to school for it. Um, and he said, it just seemed like the more I did, the more they expected. And, and I, as a shop owner, I can recognize that, but he said, man, he said, it just, everything about the way they paid me seemed shady. He's like, there was no chance I was ever going to get ahead. There was no discussion of benefits. And he said, if I said anything about anything like that, they kind of shied away from it a little bit, like, you know, trying to change the subject. And I was telling David, you know, as I was talking to this kid, I said, well, so tell me, you know, if you don't mind, what is your experience like here? And he said, well, he said, um, I have full medical, I have vision, I have dental, I have life insurance, and I have... um you know, kind of like an Aflac plan, whatever you want to call it. Yep. And I said, oh, that, that's good. He said, all of that cost me $75 a week. They pay the other 75. Uh, man, that's pretty good. Right. You know? Yeah. And he says, okay. And he said, um, and I said, well, if you don't mind me asking, I know it's a personal question. What do you make week? And he said, oh, I just got my last paycheck. He said, it's right here. Kid takes home 1575 or takes home 1500 and and before, you know, that it was fifteen seventy five after taxes, and they take the seventy five for insurance out. And I thought, uh oh. Listen, if if you can go as an entry level guy and work at a rental facility, and all you've got to do is get somebody to sign a piece of paper and take home fifteen hundred dollars a week, uh, 
yeah. these guys offering eighteen and nineteen dollars an hour. That's pretty yeah. tough. And so I mean, then I, Lucas says, "Hey, I got my application in. Do you want one as well?" And I said, exactly. "Hell yes!" <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, so I, this I may the, be the last ASOG podcast we ever do because we'll be <laughs> doing yeah, rentals in the hills of North Carolina. <laughs> um, well, so I, I actually I, I, the the place that I rented it at didn't have the piece of equipment, but they were going to deliver it in. So I, I went to the nearest place to to fill out the paperwork and pay for everything. And so I was asking him, you know, the guy that I'd actually talked to about renting the equipment. Um, I said, man, I said, this guy's telling me he's making like 1500 bucks a week. He's this and that. He's like, yeah. He's like, you know what that is? And I said, no, he's like, cause we can't get help. And he said, I'll tell you what, he said, you know, within two to three years at this corporation, he said, you'll, he said, you can easily make six figures. He said, it's not a big deal at all. He said, you take care of your client and do what's right for them. He said, you know, you'll get insurance, you'll get the whole nine yards. He said, they, they take good care of us. Um, and, and, you know, I hear what you're saying, Tanner, about the experience that you had. And one of the interesting things that I found after talking to this guy, you know, he's making really good money. He probably doesn't even realize how good the money he's making is. Oh yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm talking to him and he said, yeah, but you know, they're talking about eventually we're going to have bigger equipment and I'll have to walk down here across the the whole place and go down here and get that equipment. And I, I don't know, man. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm a first world problems, <laughs> right? Like, dude, I, for that, I would like, I would jog with a smile on my face, you know, I would just buy a Segway. Right. That kind of money. <laughs> yeah. Listen, Tanner, as short as you are, you don't even need a Segway. I mean, you could get by on one roller skate. Yo, I got um, a bike. I got a sweet bike. <laughs> is it a Barbie bike? <laughs> no. It's actually sitting next to me in my office. I'm my trainer. But he exercises, Lucas. It's crazy. I try. I have been God, trying during COVID. I don't want to be the person during COVID that gained 50 pounds. I want to be the person that at least stayed the same. I gained 50 pounds just because. <laughs> I hey, listen, to do with COVID. Listen, but if Tanner gained 50 pounds, it's <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, I would be rolling down a hill because I would be perfectly round because I'm so short. So, See, I don't think yeah. you guys understand. So everybody has been releasing chicken sandwiches. I love fried chicken. And for whatever reason, <laughs> I, I love. <laughs> Me too. These chicken sandwiches, and you know, it started with a Popeyes thing, and people are shooting each other in the parking lots for these chicken sandwiches. If they were getting into fights over these chicken sandwiches, they were running out in these restaurants. Of course, we had to go try them, and the line still to this day. They came out what six months ago, seven months ago. Yeah, the line still to this day is is really long to wait for these chicken sandwiches at Popeyes, but now everybody has them. McDonald's, and so I, we just everybody. like, yeah. And so I've been just going to restaurant from restaurant to restaurant, trying everybody's chicken sandwiches. I, Burger King just came out with a new is one. That keto. <laughs> it is not keto at all. It is super non keto. Uh, Burger King just put one out pretty legit. Not too bad. <laughs> I've had not the as good as Popeyes, Popeyes one, but the Chick-fil-A and Zaxby's just came out with one a couple weeks ago. And, of course, because I have a financial advisor and I take all of his advice he put on Facebook that the Zaxby sandwich was good, so I had to take his advice and go try it. That that advice was not as solid as his financial advice. The Chick-fil-A sandwich was definitely better. Not good? What's wrong with it? <laughs> it wasn't bad. It just wasn't Chick-fil-A. But 
Listen, <laughs> really, Zaxby's leaves a lot on the table anyway. So, I'm, see, I'm not that big a fan of Chick Fil A sandwiches. I mean, they're good. I just I, everybody goes nuts for them, and I, I'm just like, eh, they're okay. <laughs> so, I prefer the t- I prefer the Popeyes chicken. I think their chicken sandwiches, the oh, spicy. Oh, there you go. Is is good. <laughs> so I'm going to tie this back into our discussion because this is actually We're talking a about good chicken tie-in. tanner this is not how the podcast goes this is this is a perfect tie- example though no no we hook them in with like irrelevant material and then you know you should see the metrics on youtube so half the time these people drop off so they're not even listening to this point <laughs> <laughs> and the ones that are listening to this point they get engaged and they're like yeah let's talk about some chicken let's go <laughs> and then i get random emails and people are like you know what i prefer that chicken sandwich too <laughs> and then hopefully somebody at Popeye's hears this and says, you know what? We're going to sell more chicken sandwiches thanks to this podcast. We're we should give them you. all free chicken. Yes. <laughs> David want doesn't money. want money. I want just load chicken. me up with free chicken. I just got one <laughs> chicken sandwich a day. Just give me a coupon. I can come in a card or something. I can come in and just flash the card and they hand me a chicken sandwich. And we're good. Hey, listen, <laughs> if you get vaccinated, you can get a Krispy Kreme donut a day for the next oh. year. Perfect. My vaccine David is already Kirk. scheduled. So while while the arm cover starts growing out of my neck, I can kill myself Yo, with a heart attack. I could use a third arm for so many different things. So oh, totally trust me, I if, if I'm going to grow something, it's not going to be an arm. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Okay, let's get back to serious stuff here. This this conversation is going to go sideways. Right? So so here I'll I'll tie this back in for us. So listen, my of, third of arm of <laughs> your chicken sandwich experiences. Which place gave you the best experience? Not food related, and not third arm related either. We're not talking about those experiences. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> there goes the great. There goes the ratings for the podcast. That was it. We, we did. Ch- <laughs> there was a discussion on on ASOG. I was reading. Uh, so somebody was asking what good ratings is for their shop. And of course, everybody started flexing because if you've got a four point nine, what, what's yours, Luke? Is you a four point nine or a five? Oh, 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 come on now, come on now. You even got to ask. Go look it up. I don't want to hear some keys clacking. I'm, I'm trying to engage here with the podcast rather than stare at my phone. I don't even have a rating, so you guys all have me beat. And you want to know what the funniest thing about that is? Shop owners are always worried about Google reviews. You think I can ever get, since obviously my business only deals with shop owners, you think I can ever get them to leave reviews? Yeah. No. <laughs> and, I, and that doesn't make any sense either because you would think you would think that because they're soliciting for reviews, they would return the courtesy and yeah. leave businesses good reviews when there's good experiences or bad reviews or whatever, but at least, at least leave a review or take, take the, the time and, and make the effort. Yeah. Most of the reviews that I have via like on my Facebook thing have came from people that I've helped over the phone that don't even live in my state. <laughs> Not the shops that I actually go and do services for just a shop that'll call and go, we're stumped. What do we do? And I help them and they'll leave me a review, but my regular shops do not. <laughs> I, I, well, but I mean, I think that, that in their mind, helping you could potentially defeat them. In other words, they, in, in some sense of a way, they almost look at you like competition. They want to keep you as the hidden secret. 
So I changed my business name for that exact reason, which uh, they could certainly, I guess, see me as competition between other shops, but I work very, very, very hard to bring my shops together and make them understand that they need to work as a team. Um, if they don't work as a team and they work against each other, typically I punish them. I'll, I'll pretty much just, I'm pretty straightforward with that. Elaborate they, on that. I don't know what, <laughs> what are you talking about? If, if, if some mobile be, tech walked up to me and said, you need to work with this shop down the street. I'm like, no, screw that guy. <laughs> now, if the other person doesn't want to be a team player, that's one thing. But my goal is to, better the industry and make people work together so you know nobody's going to do everything and fix absolutely everything so as you guys know you're both shop owners you're both friends with each other you know especially we look at igo igo is north carolina and a bunch of the members are next to each other and would technically be competition but i make it a point to not let them throw each other under the bus. Um, that's something I have a big problem with. I actually got thrown under the bus by a dealership yesterday uh, that said that I didn't know what I was talking about because we had a Ford software issue, which has now been turned into engineering, and I was correct. I think I'm going to send that dealership some donuts as a courtesy, <laughs> and then I'll put it on LinkedIn when I send them some donuts so that everybody can see how they acted. But at any rate... It doesn't look good to customers when a shop is, you know, this shop down the road, oh, they didn't know what they were talking about. You can dislike somebody and be competition, but don't throw each other under the bus because it makes yeah. the entire industry look bad. So that's yeah. the big thing. And if I catch wind of that going on, I'm pretty forward to say, hey, don't do this anymore. Um, and when dealerships do it, I've kind of decided that. I think I'm just, like I say, going to start sending them donuts and then putting it on LinkedIn when I send them donuts. And I'll just tag whichever OEM they're with, make them aware of what's going on. <laughs> I missed something. What's the donut thing again? So I don't... I, I'm just going to send them donuts to make them feel bad that they you know, tried to throw me under the bus and that I knew that they threw me under the bus. And then I'll make oh, them they're throwing you post. specifically under yeah, the bus yeah, yeah. and not some other shop. Yeah, I sometimes it's other shops, but this specific one was me. I throw the so. dealership under the bus on a regular basis. Is that okay? <laughs> no, because it still makes everybody I'm else spiteful <laughs> and hateful towards the I, dealership. I agree with you 100% there, but at the well, end then of the day. Well, then why can't I talk crap? <laughs> because when, so if you say the dealer doesn't know what they're doing, the dealer says, we don't know what we're doing. What's the customer's general consensus? that none of us know what we're doing or that we're all hateful assholes, <laughs> neither of which we want for the industry. It, it depends. It depends if they're, if they're giving like obvious bad information out or using scare tactics or something of that nature, then I'm going to point it out and I'm going to be very disparaging of the dealership because it's, it's just not, it's, it's wrong. Right. And they're giving you wrong information and they're giving you wrong advice and this, that, and the other. And, um, the, I had a phone call from a gal. She called me up and said, Hey, I need a price on a timing chain for my 2017 Ford escape. And I said, okay, uh, let's talk about this for a minute. And I started asking some questions. Well, it turns out she's got a 1.5. It's got a timing belt, not a timing chain. She was told that it was stretched. Uh, she called she thought she had called the dealership when she called me, or she thought she had spoken to me on a Saturday. 
And I'm so I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not open on Saturdays, but let's talk about what you've already told me to this <laughs> point. There's a problem with whatever, whoever you talk to is not giving you accurate information. Now they had quoted her like 1250. And I think the last 1.5 I did, I was around $1,200. So the price was fine. The problem is they saw an easy sale. And and yep. they didn't bother to have the conversation with the, the person say, hey, let's figure out if you actually need this. No, the problem that you're describing would not be caused by a quote-unquote stretched timing anything. Uh, maybe a chain, the, the vehicle would still be running or whatever, but not a belt. That sucker would have snapped by now. So you've got a bigger problem here that we need to talk about. and So you need to bring it in for some actual diagnostic work. And, you know, we ended up, not getting to that point in the conversation, but some dealership was screwing or was trying to screw this person over and or at least get a quick sale. And of course they would have come in with the assumption that they were going to spend $1,200 and it would have turned into uh, a turbo or whatever the hell it else else it needed. Um, and that's the stuff that irks me. Uh, right. and so I have no problem talking crap on the dealership. So I agree with that. My opinion is, I guess, I like to just create doubt. So is being diplomatic, it's very easy to just explain to a customer, so this is what your car actually has, and go through that. And I'm not talking about selling, but you know, I'm talking about creating doubt. So explain to the customer what's actually going on and then show them. And when they go, well, when the dealer said this, why would they have said that? And you just kind of go... Well, I don't know. Maybe, you know, the service writer misinterpreted. Maybe they don't have great communication and so on. And you look diplomatic and it makes them, you know, the customer doesn't go back and go, oh, they called you. <laughs> so at the end of the day, and, and especially got to understand idiots, too, for me, yeah. uncaring, whatever. But you got to understand you know. for me too, my job is to go from shop to shop to dealership yeah. to dealership. Yeah, I get that. So everybody has to get along if they want to work with me because I can't have somebody go, well, you work with so-and-so I'm not going to use you anymore <laughs> because then that just creates problems for me. Um, and then obviously we'll create problems for all of them because if they annoy me enough, I'll just stop doing this <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll go do something else. I'll just retire. We're just that more endearing. We're, we're more endearing than the competition. So we try to be very nice to our vendors. Uh, so they prefer to service our shop than the, the guy down the street or the, most of the dealership. I have no problem with my surrounding customers or uh, surrounding shops. They just, they don't charge near nearly enough and um, they do some shady things. Some. Yeah. And Let's quick talk about that, not charging enough. So, you know, you guys are the kings of this, not me, but I always have mobile guys that are starting out. What should I charge? And I always ask them, what do you think you're worth? And nobody knows what to say to that. And I think shops are in the same boat. What do you think your time's worth? And they're like, well, I don't know what I, what I would like to get a customer won't pay. Says who? Charge what, you know, (laughs) choose a number of what you think you're worth and what you would want to make. Like that's how everybody else does it. A doctor, when he gets out of medical school, doesn't work for 20 bucks an hour because he has a medical degree. He's like, look, this is what I want. This is what I need to make to pay off my student bills or my student loans. Where in the automotive industry, that just never seems to happen. Everybody's self-worth is like terrible. 
you know, and, and, and so this is something that's been on my mind a lot lately. Okay. And, and you know what our area looks like, right? You, you've been here. Yep. Um, and there's a lot of times that even though I'm confident that we're doing the right thing with the shop, right? We know we're charging what we should be charging. We, you know, I, I can look at the net profit number and know that's, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. If anything, it's too low. We, we need to charge more, right? And I know what the industry benchmarks are. But the reality of it is this, is that every other shop around me charges less. Not dealerships, but every other independent. And it's by a lot, right? It, and, and, you know, at some point you got to look at it and say, do I lose clients to those shops? Yes. Now, the interesting thing is, is the majority of the time, those clients come back, right? And they'll come back and they'll say, I wish I had never done that. I learned my lesson. I'm sorry. Yep. But part of me says, you know, where do we stand as an industry financially? And and are we ever going to fix that? Right? Because, you know, and and, and I've got a friend who runs a shop and, and they say, well, you know, I charge this much an hour, 65 an hour. Right. And I've got this big shop and we're doing all these things. And, and, you know, then you talk to them and you find out that they're letting customers bring their own parts. And when they are selling parts, they're not marking parts up. And they're like, yeah, but you're taking advantage of your client. No, I'm doing what I have to do to be profitable. I'm, I'm profitable too. Some I people, do not see how. Right. Yeah. Some people hate this analogy, but it's the, you know, easiest analogy to give a customer. And it's, you know, do you think a restaurant sells you a steak at what it costs them? They cook it for you and they mark it up. That's how they make money. So like, again, people hate that analogy to a customer, but to a shop owner, it has to be the same thing. Do you think when you go out and get a steak that they give you that steak at cost and they don't make any money off it? And when you're selling parts without a markup, that's essentially what you're doing. And it's okay for other places to charge whatever they want, but you don't feel that it's okay for you to charge that. And they feel like you just said, you know, they feel like they're ripping off a customer, but literally that's how every single business in the world works. They buy something and they mark it up to somebody else. That's how Walmart works. That's how Target works. That's how everybody works. They don't right, but buy a product and sell it. But, but the problem is, is eventually if, if, Everybody is either you've got two ends of that spectrum. If if everybody is charging less than one person, or everybody's charging less than the dealer, automatically the dealer becomes a ripoff in the client's mind, right? Or on the other side of that argument, if everybody is charging more, right? If everybody's charging a fair amount, there's always going to be that one guy who's a little bit less, and and you know we talk about the race to the bottom. But when we're talking about disproportionately that low, right, to the point that it's just unbelievably low, and and to kind of circle back in this, right, we're, we're talking, we started this whole rabbit hole conversation talking about technicians. And to circle back a little bit, one of the things that you and I were talking about the other day, we were talking about the numbers, right? Yep. And you said to me, we were talking about, uh, some WTI training classes, 
and in that you said that there was a training event or that they were talking about the, the reports from the training event and that something like 10% of all attendees were between 18 and 40 or something like that. I don't yeah, remember the yep. exact number. And you said somebody stood up and said, you know, well, why is this? We're not reaching the market. And it was you or somebody else and, who stood up and said, uh, sorry, but that's all there is in the market. Yep. Um, <laughs> hello, that's a problem, right? And we've been talking about it for years. This is a problem we've been talking about for years and years and years. Yet it seems like we're not doing anything about it. And and in my mind, the first step to doing something about it is charging a proper labor rate so you can pay your techs what you need to pay them. Now, you know, my experience at the little rental place, this kid's 18, 19, 20 years old, making $1,500 a week with benefits? Yep. So the construction What are we company, doing? Yeah. The construction company and rental companies and stuff are such a unique thing. And truthfully, I really miss, you know, having them as customers looking back. Those, what's different for them versus us is nobody cares about their vehicle. Even if they have to drive an hour to work and they have to rely on their vehicle to get to work, they don't care. They're like, eh, if it breaks down, it breaks down. It's been making this noise for, you know, three months. I just keep turning the radio up. Maybe eventually it'll break down. I won't make it to work. They don't care. But with construction companies, nothing is viewed like that. Everything is viewed like a tool. So just like we view, you were talking about guys spending, you know, $1,000 on a new electric ratchet or new electric impact. And everything is viewed as a tool to us. That $30,000 piece of equipment is viewed as a tool to them. So they really don't care the cost. They just need it. And when I was working with the construction company, or not, I shouldn't say with, but when they were a customer of mine, um, I did all their tow-behind equipment. I did all of their small engine, their tampers, their road saws, demo saws, generators, uh, tow-behind air compressors, tow-behind generators, tow-behind pumps, things like that. And it was never how much or anything like that. The guy that owned the company, great friend of mine, would call me and say, Hey, I got two saws broken. They're at the job site. Grab them when you can. Thanks. Bye. And he would hang up before I even said anything. And that was just how he was. I would show up. I would grab the saws. I kept uh, saws that he had. I had had a spot at his um, workshop where he had his mechanic that worked on all their big equipment. And I had a shop set up, and they basically just called it Tannerville, where I had put stuff on shelves, and I would walk in. I would grab two of his saws go to the job site, swap them with the saws that were broken, and then take the other saws back to my shop and fix them. When I was done with them, I would take them back, put them on the shelf, and then I would go up to their front office and give them the bill. Never once did I get asked in the four years that I did that what I did. So it was completely like, you know, (laughs) scout's honor, I guess. But I would hand them a bill, and the ladies in the office would go, how much? Okay, thanks. And they'd hand me a check, and I would leave. Nobody ever knew what I fixed. Nobody ever knew what was done. Nobody cared. They needed it, you know, right now for a job. Something got broke. Something got ran over. That was it. And it was a $30,000 piece of equipment or a $3,000 piece of equipment. As long as it was cheaper than buying a new piece of equipment, it didn't matter. And they left it up to me to call and say, hey, it's, you know, going to be more to buy a piece of equipment or more to fix it than buy a piece of equipment. I'll call a rental company and tell them you're headed there to get a, you know, new one or whatever. So yeah, it's just such a different, 
I guess I would say, business than what we're in, and getting customers to value their vehicles. Well, I don't know I how mean, to do that. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, we were talking with Matt a while back where we were talking about, you know, it, it almost is like appliances as well, that, that there's only so much you can charge before you begin to, to get into the client's mind like, ah, I would rather just go buy another one, right? I'd rather have that new car smell all over again. Um, and, and, you know, I want to be really careful about how we have this conversation because over and over again, I hear shop owners say and, and voice the concern that they feel like they're taking advantage of their clients. If you're, th- this is, I want to be careful how I say this. This is a business. And my business, do what? Well, why do you want to be so careful about what you're saying? What you're saying? What, what are you afraid Dutch of? is going to yell at me. That's just going to yell at you anyway. That's what he does. Well, okay. All right. Fair enough. (laughs) So the the reason why these shop owners have a problem is because they don't see where they're adding any value. So they don't want to mark up their parts because they're like, so I bought this part from the store and I'm putting it in the car and I'm not adding any value to the transaction in their mind, right? For whatever reason. And therefore they don't feel it justified to, to, to mark it up appropriately. You, You take something like Walmart, Walmart doesn't, I mean, they do that in essence. They curate the, the, the product, the merchandise. They look at tens of thousands of different products, and they decide this would fit our stores, this would fit our key demographic uh, demographics, uh, this would be appealing to our customers. And we know exactly where to put it, and they're kings at that. Th- that effort to find just the right product to put in front of their customers and then to price it appropriately, negotiate a good price for their, uh, so they can sell it at a good price, all that is added value. And so, yeah, they may be buying that widget for 50 cents and then they're selling it for four ninety nine. It's still a good value for you to buy it at four ninety nine. but Walmart did all this work to get it in front of you. Does that make sense? And so even in the marketing of it there's value added there and and that's that's the disconnect and at least in my mind the shop owner is not seeing where they're adding any value to the transaction they just think well the customer could go buy it at an auto zone i'm buying it from an auto zone so what's the difference of course and 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 i i know that's part of it right I, i don't disagree that that's a part of it but i also know that that there's more to it than that alone, right? It, it's this overwhelming fear that these guys have, that they are truly taking advantage of someone, right? And, and I get that they don't see value, <clears throat> but, but you, have to, you have to get to where that conversation can even be had, right? A lot of these guys are not even there yet. A lot of these guys, their entire business uh, strategy is charged less than the other guy down the street, Right? How do we fix that? How do we change that mindset? How do we, because it's the same conversation though, because they're not, they're not bringing anything to the table. The only thing they bring to the table is that I'm cheaper than the guy down the street. Absolutely. They don't know what, what else how there do is. We, if they're unwilling to listen to that, right? If they're unwilling to hear what you said, they've got two options. Eventually they fail, but, but they struggle for the next five to 10 years fighting through it. Right. 10, 15, God, I couldn't imagine. 
or they listen to David and say, hey, look, you know, maybe I need to be charging more. Maybe I need to raise my rates 2021. And and that's a lot of what the podcast is about is getting that message out. But is that not a big component in the technician shortage as a whole? Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think as far as, you know, getting them to have some self-worth, it's really, it needs to be thought about what you're working on. I mean, there's still so much of the mentality. You know, you talk to some of these guys that have been doing it for, you know, 40 years or whatever, and they're like, well, back in 1970, a car was two grand and, you know, stuff so absurd now and so expensive. I hear this from a lot of the older guys. I'm like, okay, so we have no control over that. So don't worry about that. You're not the one controlling that. If a car is $70,000, so be it. Like you have, you have nothing that you can do with that. But now you're working on a $70,000 car instead of a $2,000 car. And in 1980, your labor rate was the same as it is now. You know, everything else went up with inflation. I have a slide that I talk about when I talk at colleges about uh, evolving technology. And an iPhone, when it first came out, was like $500. And now it's like $1,500. So everything goes up over time with inflation. But for some reason, all the auto repair shops are like, no, I need to be the same because I'm you know, hurting my customer. And I'm like, Literally, they're buying a $70,000 car, and 30 years ago, they were buying a $2,000 car. Like, it's not hurting your customer. It's just inflation. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that that's necessarily the, the largest portion of those that refuse to raise their rates. Because if the guy's like looking at his PL, or maybe he doesn't have a PL, just looking at his cash flow statement, or just looking at the bank account, and he's going, I'm not making that much money. You know, I, I'm making whatever, less than $50,000 a year. I could be making more as a tech, but now I own the business. I take, I've taken all this risk. Uh, I, I have all this extra work I have to do to run the business. Why am I doing this, all this work for less money? This doesn't make any sense. And so the guy may take a step back, a step back and, and say, maybe I need to raise my rates. The ones that uh, I have an issue with are the ones that have kept their operation lean. So maybe they're the only tech or they're the main tech uh, and maybe they hired a service advisor or the wife as a service advisor or something like that. And they only need X amount of dollars to live. And then that's it. Whatever that happens to be. They need to make $5,000 yeah. in profit. And because the building is maybe attached to the property and it's paid for or it's part of the mortgage. So it, there's no actual rent. Uh, insurance is cheap, you know, it, they don't spend any money on marketing. There's no frills to the business. And so even though that repair, let's take the example. I, uh, I, I gave the 2017, uh, Ford escape timing belt job, even though that repair may be worth $1,250, they're going to charge 700. They don't have any overhead. And so they don't quote unquote need to charge the additional $500, even though market value, once you get into, uh, start looking at what that would actually cost across 20, 30 different shops, you're going to find out that that's really at a $1,250 price point, not $700, but because they don't have any overhead, yep, yep. they don't need to charge the extra 500. And so they think, well, I'll just be cheaper. It's fine. 
what do you do with that? Yeah, and I, I'm going to go one step further on that. You think those guys actually look at their P&L and actually pay any attention to their numbers? Yeah. No. no, they don't. <laughs> but the guys that are struggling know they're struggling. Yeah. The guys that but, don't have any money know they don't have any money. They know. These people typically are okay. They're doing fine. I mean, they're not they're not living high on the hog, but they're doing okay. And it's because they've kept their expenses unbelievably low maybe not intentionally they're just they got lucky and they found a building that was $200 a month and you know they don't need any marketing cuz the closest shop to them is you know 30 miles away and they've fallen into a situation where they can run minimal overhead and because they have minimal overhead pretty much everything they take in uh you know they're they're overhead expenses are 10% of the ticket or whatever. So pretty much the whole ticket other than the price of the parts is there's the key. Yeah. And so at some point they see, well, I don't need to charge $1,200. I can charge 700 and still be okay. I'll still have a very nice living, uh, making some decent money. Now I, you know, I can throw some arguments out there, but it, it tends to fall on deaf ears because they just, they don't see, well, they don't and, see and that they need to charge say. market value for that repair. Yeah. It, it is they could care less, right? And and it maybe yeah. it's not even that they could care less. I, I think what it really boils They're down always to super is, busy. They're the ones yeah. on ASOC saying, I'm three weeks out. I don't know how yeah. you guys handle being this busy. Everybody then says, Where are you at labor rate wise? And they say, Well, um, you know, a three quarters of the guy down the street. Well, why are you at three quarters down uh, of the, the guy down the street? Oh, well, I, you know, at my rent's free. Uh, my electricity is $50 and my, all my utilities are $50 a month. And it's just me and one helper. And I don't have that many expenses. Therefore, you know, I'm cheaper than everybody else. I do good work, but I'm cheaper than everybody else. And now I'm stacked busy and I can't keep and, up. And here's the thing though, right? And, and, and you make a really valid point if, if you're that busy. And I mean, we're, again, we're not cheap and we're two weeks out right now. But, but my point in this is, is they can still look at this and have an ethical dilemma, right? That in their mind, they're doing something wrong in their mind. They know they can do it for less. <clears throat> so, I mean, where do we, how can you reassure them at that point? You know what I mean? If, if they are so worried about it, that they are absolutely taking an advantage of someone, how can you reassure them at that point? So right, I, I mean, have, can you can you even teach them that? That's, and I don't know that you can. I have the exact shop that David is talking about. One of my shops is literally this to a T, one hundred percent. Every single point that you just made, and I've spoken to them about it multiple times. But they approach every single repair like it's their money being spent, and I have no idea how to fix that because I've tried it. And you know, how do you, somebody that grew up with no money and wants to be everybody's friend, how do you convince them to, you know, not do that? That's almost like a psychology thing. You have to convince people yeah. that it's not your money. <laughs> and, and some of those people just don't care. And I guess that's one of the things. And it's like, not even that it's like, you have to, you have to get them to start looking at things uh, in a slightly different light. I've been there. I'm the guy that wants to be everybody's friend and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to charge the extra money and I'm going to, I'm going to be the hero and I'm going to save my customer money and that never ever works out. 
ever it ever. always burns you. It always, always yes. burns you 100% of the time. It, and it, even if you think it didn't burn you, you just haven't realized it yet. It's still coming. It's always coming. And so they just need to look at it slightly different. Uh, I was I was helping a shop up in in uh, in Nebraska, and same same mentality. Uh, it's like, oh, you know, we're we're out in the country, and uh, you know, I don't want to charge too much. These guys are just farmers, you know. I, I I just trying to fix their. I'm just trying to fix their vehicle, and I just trying to charge them a fair price. And we do a ticket audit. It's the fastest way to find problems, right? Just do a ticket audit. And we're looking through the tickets and, and I pull up a vehicle and I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. So we're, we're doing one tire rod and not both. Uh, we're, we're machining the rotors, uh, and replacing the brake pad. And we're just doing like just minimal work every step of the way. What's the bare minimum to get this thing back on the road as opposed to taking a systems approach. How do I get this steering and suspension system back to a factory condition or close to factory condition? How do how can I ensure that they won't be back needing repairs on this system for 30, 40, 50, 60,000 miles? How do I restore this system back to its condition? The original part lasted 150,000 miles. Can I ensure that this new part, whatever it happens to be, will last that long as well? Can I be sure of that? Well, that's now going to dictate what type of part you use. You're not going to use a cheap part because you're trying, you have a philosophy behind how you approach the repairs. You also look at the fact that if you don't do both tire rod ends and the customer, that other tire rod end you didn't do fails, the customer has to pay for two alignments or you're eating one of the alignments, but you have to do the work twice. Why not just replace them both? Why not just replace the rotors to ensure that those rotors don't warp prematurely because you're making them thinner. They're going to warp. It's a completely different mindset. And so I laid this out and I said, look, if you start taking this approach, your tickets organically are going to increase in price because you are no longer just trying to bandaid everything. And that ends up being the problem. It's not even that it's not even that their, their overhead is necessarily low. It's that they're just, and, and therefore, they don't need to charge. They're taking Band-Aid approach to, uh, approaches to their repairs. Yeah. I, I they're think just that's trying to majority. fix the one thing. And they think they're I, doing the customer a favor. They're not. Yeah. They're doing the customer yeah. a disservice because you're not restoring the, the system back to its as close as you can get factory condition. Absolutely. I yeah. agree 110%. I see shop after shop after shop. And I, I think that is really the answer to this question is because that's exactly what they're doing. And the reality is to do a proper repair, it costs more than what they're charging, right? Plain and simple, it costs more. If I go look at these shops in town, and I, I, I'm not going to name anybody, and I'm not saying anything bad about them, they're hacking it together. We've talked about that before. We've talked about the quality of repairs that I saw in one of my client's vehicles that came from another shop. And I'm like, oh, my God, this isn't safe. It shouldn't be on the road. I wish they did just told me is all the client had to say about it. Yeah. They weren't upset about the money. It wouldn't have bothered them. Just tell me. I just need to know if it's safe or not. Come on. Right. And and I think that's where we miss the bar constantly is we don't see ourselves as professionals. And and 
you know, I can't help but go back to the technician thing with this. I think if we look at ourselves as professionals and we act as professionals and we we treat our employees as they are professionals and hold them to that high standard that is a professional, right? Not just somebody who can turn a wrench, not just somebody who can install parts. I Man, I, I'm telling you, I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think maybe, I mean, maybe that's the way we get through to those guys is talk to them about, you know, the car needs to be safe. The car also should have hopefully some sort of resale value. We've all worked on, just like Lucas said, one of those vehicles that, you know, it was not maintained properly. And it eventually gets to the point where the customer's like, okay, you know, it comes to our shop and we go or I look at it as a mobile guy and just write it off and go, yeah, I'm not touching that thing. Um, and then the customer goes, what do I do with it now? And you go, I have no idea. Take it to the scrapyard. The car has not been maintained. Everything is shot on it. It needs $5,000 to be safe. Had somebody been maintaining it for you correctly, you know, we could tell you what to do with it and you could maybe get out from underneath it and get some money and put that back down on a car. So, you know, I guess maybe we could try to make them look at it as taking care of their customer (laughs) that way, but certainly because that's what they're they are doing that though they are taking care of the customer and they're trying to retain the value of the vehicle for their customer by advising them like a professional as lucas is saying that hey you need to do these things in order to maintain the value of the vehicle and maintain its safety and its reliability and therefore i'm going to approach repairs accordingly i'm not going to just band-aid everything Uh, sure it's cheaper to do it that way, but it doesn't benefit you in the long haul. It's going to end up saving you money in the long haul. Um, if you do the repairs properly as I'm advising, but that isn't the approach that these shops take. They they take, uh, I'm just trying to save them 20, 30, 40, $50 without ever thinking that they're costing them more money down the road. Yes. And, and that's what I'm saying. I guess I should have clarified. I'm saying, we have to talk to the shops about that, not the customer. We have to convince the shop that they're not helping the customer by band-aiding their vehicle. Yeah, So absolutely. the shop owners understand it. But so like Lucas brought up, though, from the technician perspective, um, those shops can't afford to pay. Um, the shop I'm talking about in particular is going through the same thing. They're very busy. Uh, they wanted to hire another tech, and they came to me and they said, you know, what should we be paying? We can really only pay somebody like $12 an hour. And I said, you're in an area where BMW is like, you're not going to get anybody for 12 bucks an hour. So those shops, where did they come up with the idea that could only afford $12 an hour? Because they don't But exactly what we just talked about. It's the shop that is the epitome of what you brought up. And like I said, they don't know their, they don't know their numbers. They don't look at their numbers. they, in most of those shops, I would dare guess, don't even know what their actual gross sales is because they're, I got I guess, be careful of how I say this so that I don't get people in trouble. But if they take in cash and they don't, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. So they don't actually have any idea of what their true gross sales is. They don't have actually any idea of what their income is because they take in cash and they just put it in their pocket and then they go out to eat with it and they spend it and they 
literally have no idea of what they're making or what they're not making. I'm just going to point out that it is a natural consequence of forcing business owners to have to calculate taxes like that <laughs> and pay them uncompensated to the state. But that does depend on the state. Kansas does not compensate you for calculating your sales tax and your payroll tax, your unemployment tax, and all the garbage that you have to send in every single flipping week. Yep. Um, they don't compensate you. They do in some states, though. And so what does that create? Just create a black market. You know, they're like, hey, this is the price unless you're going to pay cash. Yeah. Then it's going to be this price. I'm, I'm not saying I would do that. That's illegal. But <laughs> I'm just pointing out to the state <laughs> or those that are sympathetic to the state. That's what ends up happening when you do this garbage. Yeah. But at but- some point, though, and I understand what they're doing. But the minute they decide I'm going to hire an employee because, you know, I need to be able to handle all this workload and I need to be able to get the cars out more, uh, quicker so my customers aren't without their vehicles for three, four, five, six weeks. As soon as they decide that, they need to shift their approach to things. And it doesn't make any sense that they're like, well, we can only afford $12. Well, yeah, you can only afford $12 if you keep doing things exactly the way you're doing them now, but you're bringing on a new employee. So things are going to automatically change just from the very fact that you're going to bring somebody in. So now you have to price differently. You have to approach how you check in vehicles differently and how you dispatch and, you know, the, the QC process and all those things now change. The minute you decide you want to bring in an but, employee, but all of therefore that comes- your prices should change as well. Yeah, but you're assuming that that's what they want to accomplish. You're assuming that they're going to bring Then they wouldn't want to hire somebody if they didn't want to accomplish those things. I mean, why hire somebody then? Just keep completely. I completely get it. I completely understand your perspective, but but they just want to fix the cars, right? They they never get beyond that mindset of, I'm just going to fix the cars. They don't ever become the leader of the business. They don't ever become the owner of the business. They don't ever become more than just a technician. And, and the whole thought process, trust me, I know because I live that life. The whole thought process is fix the cars, fix the cars, fix the cars, fix the cars, that's, right? They yeah. don't ever see beyond fixing the cars. And that's exactly how do you convince them is. that? Yeah. Cause this one is strictly, they're like, well, my customers are getting mad at me because we're two weeks out. So I need to make my customers not be mad at me. So that was their whole like reason behind wanting to hire somebody. So it really wasn't like, I want to make more money or anything. It was strictly to stop customers from yelling at them on the phone when they said they were two weeks out. But it's again, not <laughs> no thought process behind it. Right. No. I mean, there's no thought process behind it, but those are the shops that, and Where that's another shop owner that, you know, he's of age. He's not old enough to retire, but he's not going to make it 10 years. He'll retire before that 10 year mark. So retire you know, with what though? Uh, I mean, well, if they're not going to be able to sell the business, the business is worth nothing. Ex- other exactly. Than, you know, 10 cents on, on the dollar for the equipment. Maybe. Yeah. Yep, uh, the exactly. equipment's probably old. So, I mean, are are they sitting on a million or two million plus in funds socked away, or they've got a bunch of rental properties or something that they don't they don't need the business to sell, or they don't need to generate more revenue? I think a lot of people look at financials a lot less than the three of us do, 
and they just retire when they feel they are ready. I mean, I'm I'm 30. I my financial advisor's been after me to pick an age that I wanted to retire for the past six months, and I told him that I was too busy trying to build different parts of the business. And finally, two weeks ago, he's like, "You need to pick an age so I can tell you." you know what you need to put away and i'm like fine 50. i don't understand the He's sense like, of retirement i will I'll, i will never retire the so, minute i retire i will croak so, so either was, i die in a fiery car crash you know jumping over a canyon or some garbage like that uh on a dare or uh i will die going to work i'll get crushed yeah. underneath a car so I very likely probably won't retire either. And that was kind of my thing. Like, I'm kind of like, I don't know. I'm sure I'll always do consulting work. And he's like, pick a number. So I picked a number and at any rate, like, so all my stuff is set up so that I could, you know, have X amount of dollars by that age. But at any rate, I don't think most people do that. You know, a large amount of people get to a point in their life and they're like, I, my body's shot. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go be a Walmart greeter and that's how they retire. I mean, there's yeah, so I, many I don't people think I any talk tech to. Plans for it. No, exactly. And I have two shops here in particular um, that I spoke with and I told them, you know, I think really you need to hire a financial advisor and have the financial advisor sit down with your technicians so that they can start planning and start understanding. Maybe I shouldn't be spending $300 a week on the tool truck. If I didn't spend $300 a week, maybe I would be able to afford a new house or a new car, or, you know, a college fund for my kid or whatever. So I have two of them. Houses are overrated. <laughs> Houses are overrated. They're just money pits. Oh, a boat is everything is campers. But so two of them have done that at any rate and their technicians, it was eye opening for them to see. So, you know, those shop owners, again, I don't think are the ones that do that. And that has a lot to do with you picking on me. Now I'm going to go by the grim reaper of shops. <laughs> that was a lot of how I, you know, knew that those shops in my past were going to fail because I looked at it and I was like, it didn't, some of it had to do with the shop that, you know, obviously it wasn't run well, but more of it had to do with, I was looking at how much money they were bringing in and how much money they were spending. And I knew that they were going deeper in the hole week after week. So I knew that financially wise, they were going to fail before the shop failed. So that was kind of, I've always been a numbers person ever since I was a kid because my dad is really cheap. My dad has owned a business my entire life. So <laughs> I just, you know, that was something I guess I always kind of looked at was, man, there was 20 cars that came in and I did this and this and this, and the overhead for this building is roughly this because the real estate in this area is, you know, X amount. This is when I was 15 working on stuff, not now. Um, and I just knew that, you know, they weren't bringing in enough money to cover what they were making. And I, would talk to people. It was a small town to where I grew up. So you knew if people were financially in trouble because there was always rumors in town, but you know, shops that are behind the times and are not willing to charge, I think will always be there. Um, but I think as time goes on, hopefully technology will make it expensive enough to where they don't, you know, see it fit to continue to do it, but we'll see. I don't know. I, I, you know, we get on here time after time after time and we talk about how we're going to fix the industry. You know, what, what is going to be the thing that, that fixes it? And, you know, after talking to you the other day about those numbers, um, 
having conversations like this, I have got a sneaking suspicion that it's got to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. (laughs) It will. And I suspect, so I have a big suspicion on, you know, everybody has always said, oh, the next 10 years, the shops will go, you know, bad shops will go away the next 10 years, the next 10 years. But what I think is going to happen at this point is, you know, everybody's thing is with electrified vehicles, whether they come about or not, it doesn't really matter. But they're like, oh, well, I'm still going to work on 15-year-old vehicles when that happens. So I'll still be okay and shops will still be okay. But let's look at it from a parts side. How many vehicles do we see that we can't get any control module for that is less than 10 years old? I see a lot with my business, obviously, because a lot of the stuff I'm diagnosing is you know, harness-related or control module-related or something like that. And I see vehicles that are five or six years old that stuff's discontinued on. So a 2019 vehicle, if it has a six-year life expectancy before they discontinue all the control modules for it, if stuff starts going bad outside of those six years, the vehicle's basically going to be junk. We won't have, the new vehicles won't last to the amount that, old vehicles did. So like somebody driving a 92 Camry for all these years, you know, that's still driving a 92 Camry, they're not going to buy a 2019 Camry and drive it for 40 years. That's not going to end up happening because shout out to the 92 Camry. (laughs) There's still some coming into my shop. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we're not going to see that, you know, years to come. So those shops aren't going to have the luxury of where they're still going to get by on those old vehicles because, the vehicles are going to be phased out because manufacturers are discontinuing, you know, every single module in the car in a time rate of, let's say six years. So then Dorman steps in. (laughs) Yeah. There's no chance. There's no chance. (laughs) It's not going to run. No. (laughs) Same difference. Yeah. Now we're screwed. (laughs) We could have had a Dorman sponsorship. See what happened there? We're screwed. (laughs) Hey, at least they they do have a phenomenal engineering team right now, and a lot of new people in that company that are trying to make big changes. That sounds like backpedaling, Tanner. You got to understand. Somebody posted. Somebody posted on one of our YouTube uh, episodes. They said Dorman. I got to look it up. They said like Dorman was a valid aftermarket part. I got to look it up. Hold on. <laughs> well, so obviously I always know some stuff that's going on on the inside of stuff. I'm part of a um, Dorman group that basically they take uh, input for engineering and stuff. And if you see things that are failing of theirs or other things, uh, stuff like that. So they are trying. Okay. So um, I give you less credit than I've ever given you before. I just want you to know that. <laughs> well, um, they're asking the wrong person. How many Dorman parts are you installing, Tanner? I diagnose the stuff that goes wrong that has their own parts on. Hold on, hold on. Here's the comment. Here's the comment. Uh, For for some reason, in episode 24, and I don't remember at what point we started trashing on Dorman, but uh, Lynn Lynn Harden, let's go with that. Lynn Harden uh, said Dorman is not an inadequate aftermarket part. She she posted it twice. She was upset with our uh, our comment. So (laughs) she will not appreciate... This portion of the episode, when we trash on Dorman. 
So well, what's well, the, what's the consensus from the engineering team? Well, hold on, hold on. The consensus from everyone in my shop is: is if it has wings, you can just go ahead and tell the client it failed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's it's interesting though if you talk with the company um, because they've been very clear of you know we have had an image problem over the past few years. I've seen this comment by it's multiple. It's not an image problem, it. Tanner. Well, yeah, but let me <laughs> let me finish this. <laughs> I, I, I guess think that you bought a shop down the road from you that was doing Mag very poorly. No, no, no. Hear me no, out. Let me get his point out. Let me get his yeah. point out. You're going to so make imagine, me feel bad. Imagine that you bought a shop down the road from you that was like miserably failing and was ripping people off. And then you bought it and restaffed it with all new people. And you wanted everybody to start going to you, but you kept the name and nobody knew that you restaffed it with new people. That's kind of what I see going on there. There's a massive amount of new people and young new people working for them. They hired a ton of people in the past like two years. So, you know, I don't they know make enough a quality about the- lug nut. <laughs> well, I say yeah, I don't I know like their lug nuts. I, use I don't them. know enough about the company to you know, inside stuff of the company to say, you know, what's going on there. I have no insight of that, but I just know that they've hired a ton of new people. So I, I will they're give, trying. I'll give you some insight into where I realized there was a problem. And this happened years ago. I order a four wheel drive actuator for an S10 pickup. It comes in and I look at it and I said, huh, I don't think so. The rubber diaphragm, on this actuator was so thin that when it was extended, you could actually see the light from the other side of the diaphragm, the black rubber. Okay. And I said, okay, send me a different one. Send me your house brand. So they send me their house brand from Napa. It's got a a factory type rubber diaphragm on it. It's thick. It's durable. You can tell. Order one from Advance Auto Parts and I order one from AutoZone. And all three of those came in and they were of matching quality to the OE. Yet I look at this Dorman piece and I can literally poke my finger onto the, the, you know, how those S10s, the top of the diaphragm's got like a metal plate in it. Mm-hmm. I could push my finger against that diaphragm and the rubber would tear and it would rip off. <laughs> and I asked the client, like, where did you get this part? I got it from Advance. They told me it was right. Been changed like six times. And I'm like, yeah, they're telling me it's probably a switch in the transfer case causing this. No, it's because the <laughs> diaphragm's junk. Yeah. You know, oh. and I, I think that was the first time I really recognized, hey, there's a problem here. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, I don't think it's, I guess good to throw one brand under the bus. There's multiples that there's oh, issues yeah. with. Lucas knows a story that I have a $1,500 bill out there right now um, from a waterlogged remanufactured module that I took apart and documented the pictures so that I could have proof when that remanufacturing company came back and tried to backpedal their way out of it, which they did. Uh, they told the client that the module was waterlogged and it was their fault um the module came that way i took it apart before it was installed in the vehicle so i have all the documentation of it i've been trying to be diplomatic and i haven't uh stuck it out there yet of who it was but when i do it'll go on linkedin for all of them to see uh 
but you know, it's just companies, I guess, lose sight of the bigger picture. Um, as we, you know, just talked about with shops, a shop that looks at it and is going after being the cheapest person. Some of these companies, you know, unfortunately get a CEO in there and do the same thing. Yeah. The guy's just going for cost cutting and, uh, it ends up hurting the quality of the product and they end up, uh, burning their, their reputation in the industry. Right. I mean, they're, they're, it's going to take a while. The family, they have to understand it's going to take a while for them to, to get it back. Or at least, I don't know. I don't know that they ever had it. I don't think any, anybody ever considered Dorman to be a high quality component, but at least they made things that were, they, they made things that were rare or discontinued through the dealership. And you knew that you could at least buy a Dorman unit. And it would still be around. Does that make sense? The- their help kit stuff was always awesome back in the day. And that's what they became yeah. like known for. And I guess yeah. this is my one free piece of marketing for big companies. I don't normally give free marketing advice for them unless I'm consulting. <laughs> if you have a, if you're an aftermarket company that the general consensus of most of the aftermarket is that the company is poor and you want to restructure, you might as well just change your name. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. You're better off starting from scratch than trying to rebrand something. Or you start making the, the the white box stuff, the private labels. All these manufacturers, all these uh, parts stores have gone to private labels. And they try to make it seem like it's a premium brand, like O'Reilly and Import Direct. Yep. And, you know, you open the box up and it's a Mevotech whatever inside. And you're like, I'm not putting that in that person's car. What is wrong with these people? Yeah. And I get it, but they could produce some of these components for these, uh, uh, and I'm sure they do to some degree. You can always sometimes tell, like AutoZone's probably the worst about this. They, they have, it's always in their part numbering system. They've got that 80-20 rule where they're only getting 80% of from one supplier and 20% from somebody else. And you can always tell it's a dormant control arm um, or somebody else's control arm in there and I don't know. Right. This this was not a scan tool discussion at all. Yeah, what happened no, to the we... scan tool? Hey, so Tanner, real quick. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Tanner, Tanner. I'm trying to talk my Tenwa, technicians. Tenwa, Tenwa. Tenwa. I'm trying to talk my technicians down. They, they went to this cockamamie Keith class, and now they're like, I need to buy a freaking Autel Ultra doodad because it has a scope and... Blah blah blah, and I'm like, whoa! We never use our ultra. Well, this this thing has like an. It, I, hey, my my tech walked up to me. He goes, "Hey, did you know that this thing will scope the can lines by just plugging the the thing into the DLC?" Yeah, and of course, it'll, that is flipping but, awesome. What are you doing? How, it's, how is it's that a little, super, It's a little helpful? lackluster. It's a little lackluster. I, I, oh. I look. I don't think you, you know, know if you're going to okay. look, if <laughs> you're going to, if you're going to scope cam lines for me, I want to be able to see all of my com lines on one screen. Okay. I don't want to be switching back and forth. I want all my com lines on one screen. That's all I'm going to say about it. <laughs> so my deal with the ultra, um, if your guys already have a scope, I think the ultra series tablets phenomenal. Um, I own one and helped with some of the development of it. And the Ultra Series tablet is really good. Um, if you already have a scope, 
then same thing as whether it be an Autel or whether it be a Snap-on or whatever it be. If you already own a Pico or you already own an E-Scope or something like that, you know, do you really need a scan tool with a scope built into it, or can you buy one of the scan tools that doesn't have the scope incorporated? And that's... I mean, for a shop, me, I would prefer having the extra scope. And I have... Um, we use our Zeus as a scope for absolutely everything. And... Uh, one of my technicians has an e-scope now and he uses that thing religiously, but sometimes having the extra channels and I don't, so I'm looking to maybe gonna, get an Altel. What is it? The MP 408 to hook up to my elite. Um, cause it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a nice scope. The, the Altel scope's a nice, the maxi scope or whatever. It's you a nice scope. More, you just want more stuff to put on your shelf. You're not going to gain anything by having another scope. You say I, that. But. I, I have an e-scope and I have a Pico, and they're both attached to the same cart. So, um, so. <laughs> and I have a U-scope and I have a Vantage Ultra or Vantage Pro. So yeah. So these techs though don't don't have they don't have dedicated scopes. Like you know, my one tech has an e-scope, but these other two guys they're looking to upgrade their equipment. And I, and I told them, I said, you know, they, they bought an older, I think it was a 4423 Pico. And I ordered a bunch of leads from Brandon. He's supposed to send me the invoice. And so um, that's that's at least something. And they can start playing around with it. And they have very little money in it. And they can they can see whether they like the software, whether they're going to be able to get their use out of it. But now they're talking about dropping five and six thousand dollars on these monstrosities that I don't know. It's just going to be, I, I in my opinion, too much. These are these are scan tools that you would think a mobile tech would have or a shop would have, and aren't necessarily something that you want to keep in your bay. Does that make sense? I would buy it. Yeah, and I, because of that, I would buy a 909, which is the one I have, because you don't really, you already have scopes. So you can buy the cheaper option that doesn't have the scope, and then you're not lugging around the large VCI with it. That's the only thing I dislike about the Ultra tablet is the big VCI. Um, <clears throat> but as far as a tool, the tool is phenomenal, but you already have scopes. So is it a good scope? Yeah, 100%. If you don't have a scope, by all means, buy the altar. But if you already have a scope, you're not really gaining anything by buying that. So you well, how much is a nine oh nine? Hold on, I'll look it up. I don't know. Let's I mean, see. just off the top, it's like three grand. I, I will 2, tell you. I think I it's will like tell you twenty five hundred to three grand in that range. Yeah. Well, so that's my point. Is like, why wouldn't you buy the nine oh nine and then spend the extra money on a Pico? Right, and you could do that too. Um, cause you're saying you're lugging around this monstrosity and it is, it's, you know, it's hefty. So you're, you're lugging this thing around to, to do what scan for codes, maybe run some bi-directional controls. Right. Like, that's what you're using it for. You're not, so well, have a scope dedicated for scope stuff. And when you need an actual scan interface. tool, have something easier to use that, that interface when it comes to, um, module interface. It, it's man, it's pretty, it's pretty great. I will say that I, the, the only beef I have with the ultra, the only beef, well, there's two of them. It doesn't charge in its docking station. Well, and it's screen dude. I'm telling you, if you get one, you better buy a screen protector instantly. You could look at that thing and scratch it. 
You didn't buy that a screen, screen protector? Dude, every, all of us have screen protectors. I put a screen you know, protector on my U-scope. Dude, Eric <laughs> took it out of the box and scratched the screen on it within 10 minutes of picking it up. So, <laughs> you might be in So, luck. what would you There's recommend a, for, a, for a tech like that? Uh, that hold on, hold on, hold on. You shut up. You, listen. <laughs> hold hold up. Hold on. I got to hear what he's got to say. There's a screen protector on that when it comes. So, make sure he didn't pull it. And it's a decent no he took protector. it off he took it off and laid the vco on top of the screen See, this is walked this is into the shop and scratched it all to shit yeah then they everybody wants to peel that that coating off of it and i start screaming at my my text or anybody that tries to peel the stuff i'm like leave it on and the one that comes on that isn't like a i guess like what you would think of like as a like it's a legit screen protector that comes out like yeah. it's pretty thick i still have one on my elite yeah i mean it's all the it's all scratched up like it is destroyed but the screen underneath is still nice and, it's and if still, you, it still works if you need a screen protector for any of the autels chad that works for autel sells the screen protectors and has measured all of them so they fit that's who i get mine from i just um, need a screen how about you class. call him and tell him hey <laughs> lucas needs a screen so your tool, as long as your subscription is good, it's under warranty. That's kind of the neat thing, too, with Autel. As long as your subscription is good, your warranty is still good. So you could call Okay, but answer my question now, though, Tanner, now that we got <laughs> off on the stupid screen, screen protector. protector talk. I would buy yeah. a 909. That's what I would buy. Really? Yeah. It's 3200 bucks. I'm looking on AES Way <laughs> right now. But so, and I guess here's my deal with scan tools that i find interesting um there's people that have always been snap-on users and those people do not like launch in autel they're like it's confusing i don't understand it so snap-on did a very good job just like autologic did with their blue box back in the day that they made the screens between every single vehicle the same so you picked code scan, you picked whatever their active test thing is. Now, it didn't matter which vehicle you were going through. You didn't have to know how to go through the menus. Everything was the same vehicle to vehicle. With Autel and with Launch, they set it up exactly like it is in the factory tool. So it is a little bit harder to understand unless you're somebody like myself and the other guys that are using the factory tools fairly regularly or just using an Autel or launch product fairly regularly that you get to understand that, oh, yeah, this is you know in Toyota, maybe under utilities or something like that. So you do get guys that are like, the Autels are terrible. It's so hard to use. I like my Snap-on better. Snap-on so much easier to find stuff. And it's like, yeah, you, it's because you've been using the same menu for the last 20 years which kind of snap was missing to, a ton of stuff they were well i the snap on guy came into my shop he's trying to sell him a triton and he's like oh man i'm gonna cut you a ridiculous deal on this triton and i think he was still at three grand how much better of a tool is the 909 than the than the triton so i don't want to throw i'm being diplomatic here i don't want to throw people under the bus but <laughs> To create doubt, like I said, I guess about before, I obviously own a mobile diagnostic business. Um, I work on everything. The only thing that I really, well, the only thing that I don't do any programming on is Mercedes because I won't ever see a return on investment of buying a kit for. Um, I do not own a single Snap-on scan tool. I own a Snap-on 
Vantage Pro that's like from the early 2000s. That's literally the only Snap-on tool I own. Um, I have Autel and launch stuff and then factory tools. So, so the 909 is the way to go. <laughs> that's what I would buy, yeah. 909. I don't. Then, I don't see people hold, giving hold launch the same love as Autel. Everybody's always talking about the Autels. Which I've what's the equivalent launch. in in the launch world? So we, we like already a, have Autels in my shop. Is my point? I want to launch. So a torque or something like that. But to be fair, I mean, I so I guess I should restate. Really I've always had a launch in an Autel. I gave the last launch I had to one of my shop owners. So I don't even have that on my truck anymore. Um, if basically I just never used it, it sat, it was in my box and I, or in my bag of scan tools, but it just literally never got used. Um, I typically find with launch that some of their stuff is unstable, not the programs, not like you're going to brick a car or anything like that, messing around with it, but the, the tool itself, you know, just like say you bought a cheap Android phone, not a, um, what I want to say, like flagship module, model, you know, you went to Walmart and bought a $30 Android phone or something and you turned it on and it was really glitchy. That's kind of what I've, my experience has been with some of the launch products is that the hardware just doesn't seem to be as stable. So like you'll be in a scan tool or in the scan tool program and it'll close out um, or it'll freeze or something similar with, uh, you know, some of the other tools that I've used that have boot up problems, things like that. I know Lucas has one in particular that he's had issues with, um, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. So the Autel just all around seems to be better as far as that goes, like the hardware of the tool versus launch. So that's my thing with it. And the new one has a topology view, which is really nice. That's kind of like the golden ticket, I guess, is to like in comparison with your elite because i had an elite before i had a 909 um the topology view is really nice and the j2534 interface that comes with it is uh doip and can fd and uh what's the other one there's another one uh the third can channel for chrysler i can't even think of the name of it now but at any rate it has you know all that's available on that new one, so you're gaining that too. Very nice. So, nine hundred nine it is. <laughs> so, if you were a shop owner, which one would you buy? In other words, like you're you're talking about this from a mobile tech standpoint. You're talking about this from a standpoint from somebody. You're talking to two guys who know what you're talking about. If you've got a shop owner who doesn't know anything about the tools doesn't know anything about the protocols doesn't know anything about the difference between j2534 or um you know any other protocol that's in our our automotive world or doesn't know the difference between a scope and a voltmeter and you know right what do you say to them well i mean they, they've got text the text won't great tools the text may not how do i want to say that the techs may be asking for tools and the shop owners saying, yeah, but that's like $10,000. Yeah. So what, what do you say to them? What's $10,000? What are you, what are you talking about? But so I mean, I guess you can get an e-scope and, and get all the attachments. It'll get close to $10,000. But don't tell spending, that to any of Snap-on's customers. 
<laughs> so that's where I was right. going to well, say yeah. though that, that's it. a perfect example of the money thing to bring up. So ten grand versus thirty two hundred dollars. Now I was a big one that I talked about when the Zeus came out, looking at nothing against you know that tool, strictly looking at the cost perspective of what can you buy for most of the guys ended up paying like eleven or twelve grand. So say you paid eleven grand the low end of it. What can I buy for eleven grand? Well, I could buy. You know, looking at current prices of a 909, it's 3200 bucks. So I could buy that. I could buy a Pico kit or an e-scope kit for, you know, two grand or something for the basic kit. And then I could buy, you can use the J-Box that comes with your Autel. So you really don't need to buy a J-Box. But then you could turn around and buy the factory tools that don't work well, J2534, like a Micropod. Um, you know, get a Micropod and get whatever else maybe you want to buy pretty much Chrysler right now and BMW are really the only two that don't work well. J 2534 uh, outside of Mercedes. Mercedes is kind of on its own right now. that just doesn't do anything. Um, but so you could go ahead and buy an icon and you could buy a micropod and still be and a laptop from Isaac and still be under 11 grand and have more coverage. Now, the downfall of that is your guys do need to know how to use that, which Lucas and I have had this conversation before about, you know, you do get to a point in which, you know, the technology you buy may surpass the guys that you have in the shop if they don't want to stay up on technology. Um, you send them to a good training class though. Right. Yeah. Uh, the Tanner had a really valid point about that. We talked about that. He had a very valid answer to that. So the old guys are going to kill me for this, but it's not all the old guys, and I'm not singling out old guys because it's also young guys too. Define I joke, old. I'm 40 years old. <laughs> so you're you all you could be on either end of the spectrum depending on what I'm going to say next. There you go. So you have a smartphone. You can text. You can use Facebook. You can use all of this technology to put the podcast on. We all know people that are, you know, anywheres from, I'm going to say 20 to 60 that have a flip phone that don't like computers, that don't like technology. I'm from a very, very small farm town. There's a ton of people my age in that town that still have a flip phone and can barely work a laptop. Like they want nothing to do with it. So the issue then becomes those people that are like that unfortunately are never going to be able to work a scan tool and work the factory tool and work the scope because they're not, you know, going to understand that stuff well enough. So I always kind of gauge it. I talk with shops. They're like, you know, I got this guy and he has been with me forever, but he seems to, you know, be struggling with technology. And I said, okay, will he get training? And he's like, Oh, you know, I don't know. He seems to kind of want to. And finally I look at him and I go, can he text? And they're like, uh, I go, can he use email? And they're like, uh, you know, he's got an email. His wife uses it for him. I'm like, okay, (laughs) can he, you know, do anything with service information? And they're like, uh, we got to pull it up for him and then he can navigate it. I'm like, he literally doesn't have any shot. Like there's no chance. And it's nothing against that person, but obviously that person has chosen that, you know, they don't want to know anything else. They don't want to, change they don't want to deal with technology and stuff like that which is okay but unfortunately in our field 
they're not going to be able to work the scan tools. They're not going to be able to navigate a factory scan tool. They're not going to be understand, or they're not going to understand the programming side of things. You know, there's just so much there right now with technology and having to get through it. This is something I talk with shops about regularly because I come out and, you know, the biggest one is I guess when I program like a GM TCM. And they're like, wow, that took 10 minutes. That's really easy. I could do that. And I'm like, you 100% could do it. But the problem is you need to be able to navigate the software. You need to be able to log in. If it's an LSID, you need to be able to use two-factor authentication on your phone. You need to be able to understand all of that and set it up or buy it from somebody set up, spend the money on it. And then even if it's set up, you still need to, like if you buy a laptop from Isaac, you still need to create your login credentials. If you're going to have an LSID and do anything on that side of it, you still need to know how to set up Authy and have two-factor identification on your phone. So you can't have a flip phone. You have to have a smartphone. Like, there's just so many things. And my dad is a perfect example. You know, my dad's 69 years old and he's a contractor. My dad still has a flip phone. Could he, in today's world, work on a car? Absolutely not, because he doesn't have a smartphone. Uh, okay, hold up. Do we actually need an LSID, VSP, whatever you want to call it? Do we? I mean, we, we don't really need one. Like da- David and I talk about this all the time. You don't have to have one. There, there's never going to be a time where to work on a car, you have to have that, right? So that's debatable, I think, because it really is up to the manufacturers on what they decide to start putting behind the LSID wall. So like, for example... I had to put a PCM in a 2016 F-150 probably three weeks ago now, maybe a month ago. Um, complete base model truck. It was a fleet vehicle. It had the converters stolen out of it, and they hit the oxygen sensor wires when they went through, and it killed um, the circuit going back to the PCM for one of the oxygen sensors that shorted it to 12 volts and it fried it inside the PCM and smoked the terminal at the PCM. So had to put a PCM in it at any rate. Um, Being a 2016 F-150, I could program it and everything fine, but then when I went to do the PATS um, parameter reset in it, you had to log in with an LSID. That year, 2016, like a lot of people get confused here and they're like, well, I can do that with an Autel or I can do that with an IM508 or whatever. But any of the Fords that are LSID with the factory tool cannot be done with the Autel. They don't have the ability to do them. So that's why I did it with the Ford tool and not my Autel IM508. So there is older Fords that, you know, you could just go in with your Autel and do it. But those older Fords also don't take an LSID. So something as simple as I, you know, put a PCM in it now all of a sudden requires an LSID. So that really is, I guess I would say. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of shops just send them, you know, a lot of the shops that are in ASOG just say, well, it needs to go to the dealer, right? I mean, they don't care. And you could do that, but you could call somebody like me too to come out. But I really, what sucks, I guess. Burn it. Yeah. Well, uh, that's what I was going to say. Last time I called him for a Ford, it called on fire. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, and the, he cried about brake lines the whole time. Yeah. The so whole time. The downside, I guess, of sending it to the dealer. Now, you guys are way more up on management and business things than I am. Obviously, you have the opportunity of, you know, 
them trying to sell things to your customer. There's a, we also all know guys that they handle all of that. They take it to the dealer, they pick it up. The customer, like whether they know it went to the dealer or whatever, they don't even know. They handle everything for their customer. Um, I saw one of the guys in ASAG was talking about he handles all their warranty stuff or recall stuff. They have their guys drop them off and they take the car to the dealer for their customer and they pick it back up. And so that's you know another level of service. But you know, do you want to go through all that and send the car to the dealer? And you could also obviously, yeah, you could call somebody like me, um, which is fine. I mean, gladly call me. I'll gladly, you know, make the money off it. I'm fine with that. Even, and people will complain too, obviously about the steps it takes. And it is, I'll admit it, it's a pain even for me. Um, typically if I know that I have to do something that's going to require an LSID, I charge more because it's more time consuming. Um, a lot of times it happens to where I don't know that I need it. Like with that Ford, that particular one, a 2015 didn't need it. A 2016 did. So I got there and I had no idea. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh crap, luckily it was a fleet truck, which is less information needed to uh, fill out your D1 form. But, you know, it is kind of a pain. I mean, Go ahead. Do we ever get to the point that it's something stupid like, uh, a wheel bearing, a window switch. Do we ever get to the point that basic repairs in a repair shop couldn't be done because you have to have access to something? I could certainly see it getting to a point where some stuff, because, you know, we talk about all the time brakes is something that everybody thinks is simple, but it's a safety critical part. And obviously we have to be able to turn the calipers in. You know, could a manufacturer like Tesla or somebody ever go, yeah, in order to perform a brake service, we want you to have this? They certainly could. I mean, we have no control over what they do and don't do. That's not something that, you know, that's something that you can ask them not to do. But at the end of the day, they have more money than, you know, the people it's that are decision. overseeing it. Yeah. Right. It, at the end of the day, it's their decision on whether they do or do not. Yeah. And at that point, it leaves us one window to access. Yeah. And that's nasty. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for what it takes to get it, it's really not a big deal to get it. Money-wise, it's not a big deal to get it. No, and once it you have it easy. set up. And, super easy. Yeah. And so I think it's kind of, you know, guys that are saying – that they don't want it or whatever, they have a problem with it. it. Probably haven't looked into it enough to really understand what it takes. And again, for me, like I said, it is kind of a pain sometimes, but you just charge more. Your customer has to understand that, you know, for me, if I'm going to a shop and I have to do something that requires it and it's a customer vehicle, not a fleet vehicle or an auction vehicle, then I have to have the customer's license. I have to have a copy of their registration. Um, you know, I have to have them sign a paper and some stuff like that. So it's a lot more for me to go through and do it. So obviously I need to charge the shop more, which in return, they just need to, you know, charge their customer more for it. And it's, could that person go to the dealer and just get it? No questions asked. Yes. And no, you know, technically if you talk with the manufacturers, if they're doing anything key related, they're supposed to be verifying all the same stuff. They're supposed to be getting a license from that customer and verifying that the customer owns the vehicle. Now, whether they're doing that or not, you know, that depends, but they're supposed to be doing it. So, well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the ASOG podcast. 
we have even more conversations coming your way from the most influential technicians in the industry today. So if you'd like to catch these episodes early, you can do so by becoming a patron. Just go to asog.site and click on the Become a Patron Now button. Becoming a patron helps support the show, gets you several perks, and is tax deductible. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and on YouTube. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, or if you have any topic suggestions, please reach out to me via email. My email address is david at asog.site. That's D-A-V-I-D at A-S-O-G dot S-I-T-E. Until next time. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the ASOG podcast. Before I let you go, I need to ask you a question. Are you using the best innovative shop management system in the country? If you doubt that you are, why are you making your life harder? Shopware stays one step ahead of everyone else by bringing a clean, easy to use program unlike anything else on the market. Go to getshopware.com and see what I mean today. That's getshopware.com. Check it out. Thank you for listening to the Changing the Industry podcast. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor and leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to set it to automatically download the latest episode. Our efforts with this podcast, the YouTube channel, and the Facebook group wouldn't be possible without the support of our awesome sponsors. So please take a moment, check them out by clicking on the links in the show notes.